from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with John Hatcher. John is Professor Emeritus in English Literature at the University of South Florida. He's published a number of works, too many to mention here. His works include original poetry and novels, the translation of poetry from Persian and Arabic, and a sequence of works about the Baha'i view of reality. In the interview, we focus primarily on the last area. The works related to the subject of reality include The Purpose of Physical Reality, The Arc of Ascent, The Ascent of Society, and Close Connections. We also had time to discuss his work on life after death. I started the interview by asking John where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. I was born in Richmond, Virginia, but we moved uh, to Greensboro when I was uh, a baby. And so my uh, foundational uh, recollections of uh, childhood are around Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, We moved to Atlanta when I was in the third grade. But my uh, most idyllic memories come from uh, Greensboro and uh, a particular area called Stormout Forest, which, uh, as the term implies, uh, had lots of trees and lots of forest. And uh, I spent most of my life in the forest as much as I could. It was quite wonderful. It was it was when uh, I grew up, well, my earliest recollections of childhood are playing with kids. This is right after the end of the Second World War. I was born in 1940, so I was aware of the war and so on, but on a very peripheral level. And so we had a wonderful neighborhood. I could still name virtually all the kids there and all the stuff we did. It was It was quite wonderful. So what were your interests growing up? Lots of uh, outdoor activities, sports. More than anything, I wanted to be a football player. I mean, there are pictures of me in a full football regalia at at age four. That was my uh, life's ambition at the start. Uh, There was a guy up the street who played for Elon University. I believe it was Elon. uh, Or no, Guilford. Guilford University near near Greensboro. His name was Buddy Flynn, and he gave me his uh, football jersey when he was through playing, and that was a big deal to me. He also gave me an old helmet, which I put on and promptly decided that since the helmet made me impervious to pain, that I could run headlong into a tree, which I did. Oh, my gosh. and, uh, And knock myself senseless, and I realized that I didn't realize anything. I I needed a better helmet. (laughs) Oh, my. So I spent my whole life running into trees, uh, (laughs) doing one sport after another. So I love sports. I was five years younger than my brother, who was more interested in uh, cerebral things, such as uh, he and his best friend, David Wright, up the street. David Wright, who lived up the street, got into magic. They would put on magic shows and uh, 
early on, uh, Bill played the violin and and so on, and showed early signs of his uh, deft capacity for deep thought, whereas I was more interested in in girls and sports. (laughs) And what was spiritual life like growing up? Very pleasant. I was brought up as a Methodist by my parents. I more powerfully remember the training I got in the Methodist Church in Atlanta. My mother was head of the junior department, which was junior youth uh, at St. Mark's, and uh, she always provided me with a lot of conversation about spirituality and religious concepts, though none of it was dogmatic. Uh, She herself had rather amazing spiritual experiences as a result of losing her mother when she was four and then her father died when she was 12. And she had a very mystical experience that really, in, in some sense, set her on firm ground for the rest of her life. She was the one to whom everyone turned, both in our family and, and in the church, for advice and so on. But again, it was not a mindless sort of uh, spirituality. It was well thought out. She um, was a well-educated person, was intending to go to uh, to be a missionary to China, and in fact would have gone but for a revolution that occurred just as she was about to depart. And then she went on to the University of Georgia to begin her work on a MA in English literature to become a teacher. So um, my early religious training was was basically in the Methodist Church, which at least the one we went to, because it had no dogmatism or really any greatly shared sense of spiritual concepts. It it presented an atmosphere of great freedom insofar as... uh, uh, you know, particular teachers might be dogmatic and fundamentalist, but your next one wouldn't. At one point in high school, I, I became president of the youth department, which included the college and high school youth. I think it was actually president of the of the Methodist Youth Fellowship is what it was. Uh, because we used to love to have these very deep discussions. Early on, I found uh, a deep interest in philosophy and, and spirituality. I remember some of those conversations today. That's sort of the, the, the overview of it. By, by the end of high school, I was already very deepened in the Baha'i faith. My brother had, was interested in the faith and shared some of it with me. Uh, I was asking questions and uh, mainly to our ministers and junior youth leaders and so on, and uh, about the very issues that the faith deals with, sort of pitting their answers against the answers I was finding in the Baha'i writings. How was it that your brother discovered the Baha'i faith? He was, uh, let's say, he's five years ahead of me, so when I was in high school, he was just beginning college and uh, had determined that he wanted to become uh, a minister. So he went to Vanderbilt to do uh, his undergraduate work with the intent on uh, going to Yale Divinity School when he was through, was very much involved with uh, 
Christian fellowship organizations on campus. And during the course of one of his uh, comparative religion uh, studies, he encountered the faith. And uh, I think it was his freshman or sophomore year and uh, couldn't let it go. He wanted, uh, again, did the same thing I was doing. He was pitting its perspectives and uh, answers against those that uh, he had uh, learned as a Christian. By the time he was to graduate, he had decided he would become a Baha'i, and indeed the weekend of his graduation from college, he declared himself a Baha'i, much to the consternation of my parents, who were Methodist ministers, there, uh, there are a lot of them on our, my father's side, and then uh, so uh, they were quite proud that he had a scholarship to Yale Divinity School. Uh, so that's how he discovered the faith. And about the same time he was studying uh, or into that, he informed me about it and some of the theories of it. In fact, I remember the night or the afternoon he told me about the faith, and he took me to a picnic where there were these just strange mixture of lovely Persian young ladies and and very elderly, gray-haired ladies who had been Baha'is, I think, from the time of Abu Baha's visit to the country. And on the way home, he said, well, what did you think of those people? And I said, they were very nice, very interesting, especially the the lovely Persian lady who took me for a walk, and uh, he said, well, I, I uh, uh, what do you think of the Baha'i faith? And I said, well, it sounds sounds great. I said, uh, if you like it so much, why don't you become a Baha'i? And he says, I just did. And my response was, well, m- mother and daddy aren't going to like that. <laughs> so that's, that's how he became a Baha'i. What convinced you to take the leap? Well, uh, it wasn't a very hard leap, actually. I studied it. On, there was no, obviously no pressure, no one teaching me because he was at college and I was in high school, but I knew enough of it and, and the basic principles that what attracted me to it was that it gave logical answers that resolved all the enigmatic problems that I found in traditional Christianity, such as the ontology of Christ or or Christology, such as what happens to those prior to the time of Christ. But the whole question, really, for which Methodism at least had no uh, clear answer, uh, who was Christ, what was his station, what is the logic of God's creation, and so on. And the faith made religion uh, logical for me. And I remember there was, for example, uh, a, a club that a, a very fine teacher, one of the two I had in high school, who put together a group called the Inquirers, or that's what we called ourselves, and, and we would have a formal dinner at his house once a month, suits, ties, dresses, so on, and we would discuss the great issues of the world, such as the possibility of Instead of the polarization of powers, what if they were in the United States of Europe, which of course has now occurred more or less, or what if China emerged or Africa emerged as a third power to offset the polarization? So we've discussed really heady topics, 
and one of them uh, that we discussed was the Baha'i faith because I was interested in it and he knew it. So I did a presentation on it. So I, I spent a lot of time both at the church and uh, at, in other arenas discussing the faith and posing it as what if this were true or let me see you try to refute it. And since I wasn't a Baha'i, I could do it very honestly and straightforwardly. And I remember the most fascinating occurrence, or one of the most fascinating occurrences of that sort, was there was a group that came through town at the time called Moral Rearmament. And the founders of it became the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous and other groups. They were very uh, well-intended, but they were looking for a world solution to the problems of racial tension and unity and then trying to discover some pathway to unity and diversity. And they put on a play, very fine production, which dwelt on this theme. And then they would divide up uh, with those attendees who uh, had come. And it was sort of each one would take someone who uh, was interested and, and pair off with them and, and we'd go to dinner or whatever. And they would talk to us uh, uh, and try to get us to join moral rearmament. And I said, well, what is your plan? What are you going to do? And he said, well, we join. We, we go around, in effect, preaching this, this message of, I think there were four main principles of complete honesty, complete they were absolute virtues was the idea that you would strive to attain. And so aside from pitting him against some situations where I thought absolute honesty would be injurious rather than justice, I then said, well, let me put one to you. I said, I'm investigating the Baha'i faith, and here's its principles. So for uh, 45 minutes, I presented him the concepts of the basic concepts of Baha'i faith. I said, now, given a choice of joining an organization where I have to stop my school and tour the world with this show, or joining an organization which intends on putting together a world polity, which do you think would be best? <laughs> he had to admit that the Baha'i sounded better. So that was the sort of thing. That was when I was in high school. Then when I got to college, I had promised my father I wouldn't be a Baha'i until I graduated from college because he, he was afraid that, uh, that I would follow in Bill's footsteps simply because uh, he was older and uh, obviously I admired his uh, mental capacity and, and so on. What Dad failed to recognize was that, that we basically fought like cats and dogs uh, most of our lives and that had, we really had very little in common. And the last thing I would do was do something because Bill did it. Uh, at least at that time, I, I was kind of a, a nowhere because I no longer could bear to go to church and hear ideas uh, put forth that just sounded utterly illogical and, con and incongruous to me at that point. And I remember the, the sort of turning point was I uh, was hitching a ride and a Baptist minister picked me up, and he said, uh, naturally, in, in the course of taking me back to campus, he said, so what religion are you? And I said, well, I was a Methodist, but right now I'm looking into the Baha'i faith. He says, oh, my goodness. He says, you get in touch with the Reverend Hindley over at the First Methodist Church. He'll, he'll take care of you. He'll answer your questions. So I decided I would go to Reverend Hindley's church the next 
the next uh, Sunday, and I did. And I just wanted to stand up and scream. I just couldn't stand it. Uh, that the, that what I had tolerated before when I was young and, and mostly just tried to make it through the sermon without uh, having to stand up and rub my legs because I couldn't stand sitting so long. It just rankled me so. Uh, for, you know, one thing that uh, I believe he said was that we must love God because he needs our love. God needs us. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, that's such an illogical concept in so many ways. And I just uh, I couldn't stand it. So I, I, for years after that and after becoming a Baha'i, I couldn't listen to a sermon or anything because I think I was angry at myself for having sort of naively accepted all this without questioning it earlier. So there was anger there. That's what happened is I decided that I was tired of being uh, in between. I'm not being able to declare myself as a Baha'i. And so when I went home for Christmas, I, I told my father, and I said, uh, you know, I, I broke down crying. And I said, Dad, I, I can't keep my promise to you. I don't like being nothing, and I know what I believe. And it's silly for me to hold off simply because of that promise. And he said, well, there's no need to cry about it. <laughs> and that was all he said. And he was very happy, frankly. And over the years, the, the parents were so grateful that we had found something that gave a center to our lives, a focus to our lives. And uh, at the age of 93, my mother became a Baha'i, though she had known about the faith from that point on and had studied it. As I, I still have her books, and as I looked through them and look through them now, just these detailed notes. As I say, she was a very intelligent woman. So was my my father, but he never spoke much about religion. But she has, uh, would say, this is so much like such and such a passage in, in such a book in the Bible. And she would, in effect, was doing her own uh, comparative religion course on her own. So in her book of gleanings, it's just a wonderful thing to see all of these notes and underlines and so on. So about what uh, time period were you um, involved with the Baha'i community in your, as you were investigating it? Was it during the uh, Civil Rights Movement? Just before the Civil Rights Movement. I was, in fact, I was in what became one of the hotbeds of the, the beginnings of it, because I went to Vanderbilt also, and uh, there were several uh, stalwart figures. Uh, some of the sit-ins that began in Greensboro, as a matter of fact, was were quickly followed by the same sort of thing in Nashville, because you have so many fine uh, black universities there, Fisk and Tennessee A&I and uh, Meharry Medical College and so on, so you had sit-ins in Nashville too. I remember I was in the Nashville Baha'i community, and I remember when it became part, the, the discourse hit the, the Baha'i community full force. The, the Baha'i community in Nashville was just wonderful. It was so diverse. Uh, three black professors, a lot of public school teachers, you were just not aware of, of race there. It was just, it was such a fine community and, and planted the seeds of what is an incredible community today. For the remaining of the hour, why don't we get into the works that you've published? And as you had suggested, you've published so many things that it's probably 
helpful to sort of categorize your works and then discuss them as a group. And then um, if you can, share some excerpts that I asked you to prepare. And I guess the most interesting one, which I think maybe you've written possibly the most about, is the Baha'i view on reality. I don't know if you agree with that assessment. Yeah, uh, well, the the first thing I, I wrote were, were a couple of children's books, one on the history of the faith, or the, the biography of Baha'u'llah, Ali's Dream, which, as it turns out, has been translated more than anything else I've written into a number of languages. But it was a, a children's book uh, about the life of Baha'u'llah. So you're right, the first serious uh, I mean, serious in the sense of dealing with the basic theological principles and uh, of uh, the faith. It d- dealt with the purpose of physical reality, and I wrote about five books related to or stemming from that initial study. The way it came about is worthy of uh, recounting, perhaps. I, I was uh, lying on my bed one night, and I was reading from the Baha'i writings, and... Uh, I had previous to this determined that I had be, I'd gotten a PhD in medieval literature and I was going to become a great medievalist. And then at some point I decided that after trying it for three or four years and realizing that this was not what I really took joy in. So at the same time, I had a sort of epiphany, if you will. I was lying on my bed reading from the scriptures of Baha'u'llah and realizing that this was actually the voice of God speaking to me through an untrammeled source, namely the Baha'is believe in uh, a succession of teachers or messengers, what we call manifestations, through whom God has educated humankind progressively and in successive stages. So, I mean, the way I like to state it is Baha'is believe that all the world religions are really one religion revealed in progressive and successive stages. As a result of of accepting this belief and believing that Baha'u'llah, the founder of the faith, is is the messenger who has the guidance for, for this day and this age, I was one night reading from these and realizing on a more personal and subjective level, my gosh, that these words I'm reading are God speaking to me. Well, let me put it this way. That you, the words of Christ that I had read as a, as a Christian, uh, of course, are in different Gospels in different ways and so on, and they are recollected after Christ had, had passed away or had been, been crucified. But these were handed directly to the Baha'is by the founder. And and I thought, this means that if I want, I could ask any question that I, I wish, and the answer will be here somewhere. And so I spent uh, quite a while trying to decide what question that I didn't know the answer to, because I felt the faith had given me a lot of answers, but what uh, what question could I ask that I didn't know, that I wanted to know? And so I sort of said, okay, well, I know the basic purpose of a physical reality or of my life, which is to know and to worship God, to become a better person and to prepare myself for the continuation of my life beyond this life, which is another Baha'i belief. Uh, and then I said, but why, 
why this path? Why this way? In other words, if God wants to create spiritual individuals, why didn't he just do it? And if our destiny, if our essential reality is that of human souls associating with physical bodies for a very brief period of time, relatively speaking, and our ultimate destiny is is to dissociate from these bodies and, and be purely spiritual beings, still trying to develop and, and grow, why such an indirect path? And I decided, well, if God is a perfect creator, then this must be not only a good way to do it, but the best way to do it. So then I went about investigating that. Why is it the best way? Uh, or putting it in terms of, of my interest as a teacher, if God is the perfect teacher, then his methodology must be the best methodology. It must be indeed a perfect methodology. And so what is the technique that God uses? Well, he, he uses intermediaries. He uses teachers, which I was too. So I, I was sort of an intermediary between medieval literature and my students. And so I wanted to know how do these manifestations work and why this indirect method. This thought provided the basis for my first serious discourse into Baha'i thought, and it was uh, called The Metaphorical Nature of Physical Reality, which ultimately became a book called The Purpose of Physical Reality. And, and so I will, uh, I'll, I'll just read you a brief part of the, the introduction. Therefore, where some religions have established a body of learned clerics or scholars who interpret religious scripture and teachings for the laity, Baha'u'llah abolished the clergy and commanded that each individual investigate truth independently. Yet in spite of all this encouragement that Baha'is consider a rational basis for belief, one essential question rarely gets asked, not because it is forbidden, not because the answer is unavailable in the Baha'i writings, but probably because most people do not think to ask it. The question concerns physical reality why it exists, and how it works in a universe created, so the Baha'i scriptures affirm, by a loving and caring deity whose sole objective as creator is to devise a means by which human beings can come to know and to worship him and benefit from that relationship. This critical question is sometimes dismissed with a self-evident but inwardly unsatisfying response. Since God fashioned physical reality, and since it is intention that we develop spiritually, then physical reality must be a benevolent creation that somehow facilitates spiritual development. In other words, what is the real answer? Obviously, it is beneficial, but why? And why this way? And why, in other words, it gets into things like why people suffer and why does everyone not have the same experience or the same opportunity? And basically, the answer I come up with, to put it in a nutshell, is that this is an opportunity whereby we can come to know God independently, rather than being coerced, as I was in, uh, in some of my Methodist Church uh, Sunday School classes, but where we are tested to recognize uh, God on our own through his messengers and then further tested to put that recognition into action. And the way I express it in the book is, is the most general observation is that this life is therefore a metaphorical exercise or 
a dramatic experience whereby we act out our spirituality and by acting out have this sort of reciprocal relationship where every action begets better understanding and the more understanding we have of the spiritual principles we are dramatizing in our lives, the better able we are to exercise these principles at an ever more lofty level. So it gets into Platonic thought and uh, what is called theodicy, which is the study of God's justice. How can you simultaneously believe in, in God's justice and, and, and a God who allows bad things happen to good people, which has become a very, has always been a very important discussion and, and, and remains so. So that was the, fir- the first major book I wrote on the, on the topic, and it, uh, I must say it's probably sold better than anything else I've written. The follow-up to that, that was written twice, really, once in great detail called The Ark of Ascent, and then more recently a sort of trimmed-down version of that called The Ascent of Society. The subtitle sort of states what, what the book is about, The Social Imperative in Personal Salvation. And, and this book says that, okay, pers- uh, physical reality has a purpose. It's to teach us. This book says that however your personal ascent, your personal development, however you dramatize it, necessarily involves you with other people, rather than, say, a mystical or a mystic orientation to spirituality where you go off and meditate and become very spiritual and then you have to come back and uh, and deal with people and it's not so easy. This says it is is an intention or it is an inextricable part of our development that our own personal spiritual ascent involves our relationship with others otherwise it is totally theoretical that our spirituality is theoretical until exercised in ever more expansive groups first in your family and then with other families in your neighborhood and then you know you you get to the largest Baha'i perspective on this, which is a global polity, a a global uh, community where the needs of everyone are are secured. So that was the second step in that, if you will. And then then after that came a a third book, which was uh, called Close Connections, which is a book that deals with the more explicitly with well okay what is then the relationship if we say there are two dimensions of reality the metaphysical and the physical and that we are only temporarily associated with the physical realm and that our the purpose of this is preparation for our experience in the metaphysical realm how exactly do these two realms interplay and there's uh, one quote in particular that I love from the Baha'i writings about this, where Abdul Baha says that he was the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith. He states that that each reality is the exact counterpart of the other reality, which is so. This counterpart relationship makes it clear that this dramatization of our personal lives, both as individuals and as social, socially concerned citizens is a counterpart relationship with what 
we will understand more directly and clearly in the realm of the spirit. I'll read you a passage from the Ascent of Society that sort of hits at the core of this. This is on page 79 of the book. It's called The Social Self as Confirmed by the Social Sciences. Thus, our individual goal may be the progressive habituation of virtue by means of employing the twin duties of knowing and doing. But the means by which we exercise this process of individual ascent is necessarily social in nature. The true gauge of whether or not progress has indeed occurred is the extent to which we become detached from being exclusively concerned with our individual progress and instead become increasingly aware of and involved in the progress and spiritualization of society and the social institutions that are, in reality, but inclusive expressions of our own identity. The idea that our individual salvation and spiritual progress are inextricably bound up in our social identity is hardly new or in any way exclusive to Baha'i belief. When we employ the term homo sapien, we necessarily allude to a biological organism with relatively few instinctive patterns of behavior and consequently with little or no inherent autonomy. If the social sciences have anything to tell us about ourselves that is beyond much controversy, it is that as a species we have a fundamental need to relate our personal situation to some more inclusive enterprise. So in other words, spiritual development as a, as a concept of, of individual uh, advancement is all well and good, but until you put it in a, a social context, it's as I say, is fond of saying it is totally theoretical. So you could say that a hermit who lives in a cave uh, and lives off the land and so on may consider himself or may be considered by others as a great guru with tremendous spirituality. But until this individual comes into my neighborhood and raises a few children and has a uh, benign influence on our community, what is the proof of it? Theoretically, this is spirituality, but it's, it has to be exercised. Here's a quote of, on that same line from The Ark of Ascent, which uh, was the predecessor of that book. Therefore, to say that fostering and sustaining of the relationship between the individual and the body politic is a balance could be misleading or understood if we infer that the health of one organism should be sacrificed to sustain the well-being of another. Health results from recognizing the organic mutuality of the entire system. When such an understanding is reached, there is no longer a question of whose health has primacy in this. As we have repeatedly noted, the health of the whole and the health of the part is synonymous. And this is a very important point, that you're not sacrificing your individuality for the health of the whole. Each one helps the other. It's a reciprocal and process that uh, if you want to be spiritual, you help create a spiritual environment, and that environment subsequently assists you in, in maintaining your own spiritual development. So that's why the, the great emphasis in, in the Baha'i world today is on uh, beginning at the uh, what I call the God particle of society, which is 
a healthy family living in a, in a healthy community. Because if the whole world is run with great organization and efficiency and there are no wars and so on, if you aren't happy in your where you live, you may be happier than if the world were at war, but you're only as happy as your daily life is. So, I mean, that really is the foundational basis for a world policy. Mm. And then the final, I wrote two more books, if you're interested, <laughs> on the same theme. One is mm. called uh, Close Connections, as I said, which deals with pretty much with the tension between science and religion. And then uh, a final book on the subject, uh, well, who knows if it's a final book, <laughs> uh, called The Face of God Among Us, How the, Educator, How the Creator Educates Humanity. You also have some works on life after death, which just seems like a nice progression to like the next phase of existence that you're sort of referring to in your works about physical reality. Yeah, I got into uh, the interest in life after death because I, uh, not only because I uh, will die and all of us will, and so it'd be nice to know something about what's going to happen. <laughs> and then since all of the Baha'i writings dwell on the the fact that our life here, as Baha'u'llah says, is, is comparable to the life of the child and the, the womb of the parent. I uh, became very interested in, in sort of becoming informed as much as I could from the Baha'i writings about the nature of that, that life after death that awaits us. John, if, would you mind elaborating on that metaphor for those who might not be familiar with the Baha'i well, it, it, basically, Baha'u'llah states that in the same way that the totality of the life, the uterine life of the child, is in preparation for this life. In fact, Baha'u'llah says that if you yearned for this life, then you should have done so while you were in your mother's womb, because as soon as this life starts, you're heading towards... <laughs> The next world, in other words, all this life is a, a womb-like, if you will, preparation for your birth into a, a, a more expansive reality. So that's the purpose of this life. So he says, if you if you wanted to aspire to the things of this world, you should should have done it in the womb, because in this world you are, as soon as you're born, receding. In other words, you're starting to count off the days allotted you in preparation for your next birth. And it's a very powerful metaphor, and in fact, it became the basis for a book I recently wrote called Understanding Death, the Most Important Event of Your Life. So I started off that book with expanding that analogy and, and wrote a little sort of quirky and, and purposefully lighthearted analogy for several chapters about triplets in a womb and presuming that they could converse with one another and that they had free will to decide what they would do or wouldn't do. It goes on for several chapters. It's lovely. I hadn't really intended for it to be that long, but the more I got into it, the more fun I had with it, and I didn't want to let it go. And so they called them the Sullivan Boys, and the premise is that the mother and father can talk to them through a, a specially devised fetoscope. So I, I portray this in two ways. One portrays the boys as they grow up in the world of the womb and develop their various uh, 
faculties and arms and limbs and fingers and enjoy it and really think this is great stuff until they uh, are about ready to be born and, and realize that they don't know what's going to happen to them and, and become very fearful. But the, the part I would like to read to you, if you're interested, is a part in the, the sort of second perspective of this where the parents are talking to them because they've decided they're tired of growing and, and really don't want to, and the parents are trying to convince them that, no, you really you really need to, <laughs> and, and we're ready here to... To, what you're going to experience here is much more wonderful than anything you could experience in the womb, and, and they're questioning the mind. How do we know that that there's a life after after this life in the womb? And so the, the three boys are Roger and and Sammy and uh, Harry, and the the mother is Lucille. And so I'm going to break in here to a point where the father. Mike finally speaks to them, and this is the first time the boys have have realized that or have heard their voices. Boys said Mike in his deep voice. Whoa, said Sammy. Did you hear that noise? That one sounds big. I'm not sure if I like this one bit, guys. Boys, I am your father. Your mother and I simply want to help you a little. We think you've done a great job so far, but well, we heard you talking. Well, about slowing down, you know, with, with the going thing. True enough, said Sammy. We need a break, that's all. Besides, we're beginning to wonder, at least I am, if all this growth is worthwhile. It takes a lot of work, you know, growing stuff, especially the arms and the legs. But how do we know that you are who you say you are? If you're our creators, how come you never said anything to us before? Well, we wanted to, said Lucille. I wanted to tell you every day how much we love you and look forward to seeing you, but we didn't want to interfere when you were doing so well on your own. You're going to see us, said Roger. What do you mean you're looking forward to seeing us? Boys, we we wanted to talk with you tonight because we felt that it's it's time you understood that all your growth has a purpose. You see, all three of you will in time enter the world we're in. And then we will see you firsthand. Then we'll be able to teach you directly and hold you and hug you and and throw a football if you like, Mike joined in. Look, said Sammy, it's all well and good for you to say that there's some sort of world besides this one we live in, but we can't see it or touch it. How can we be sure it exists? For that matter, how do we even know you are who you say you are? How do we know you're not simply trying to trick us? Yes, said Roger. Perhaps you're hungry and you're going to gobble us up. What, said Harry, gobble us up? We don't even know if they have mouths, for goodness sake. Look, whoever you are, is there some way you can explain to us the purpose for all this growing? Unlike my somewhat less ambitious brothers here, I happen to enjoy a good day's growth. You're trying to tell us that there is some long-range plan for us, some destiny beyond swimming about in this gelatinous fluid? Exactly, said Lucille. Your life in there is really very brief and limited compared to the afterlife in this world where we are and where you will also be before too long. And even though it may seem like growing legs, arms, organs, eyes, noses, and mouths is all rather pointless, without them you'll be totally unable to enjoy this life or take advantage of all there is to accomplish here. Well, it goes on and, <laughs> and, and so on. That's cute. Uh, 
the most fun part for me is the first part where they're being born and they think they are being swallowed up by the universe uh, when, as they descend through the uh, uh, the birth canal. <laughs> as I say, I dealt with this subject first in, in the very first book, The Purpose of Physical Reality, when I started relating some of the near-death experiences were just being discussed by... Uh, people like Moody and Life After Life and, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. This was uh, around 1977. And so I got into it a, a lot there. And then I got into it uh, more directly in, uh, in that book, you know, the, the one I just mentioned, and then an introduction to a collection of the Baha'i writings on life after death called Journey of the Soul. What's interesting is that where most religions talk in necessarily uh, because of the people they were talking to, the founders uh, such as uh, Moses or the uh, uh, Old Testament prophets and writers or Christ or Muhammad talk in very veiled or symbolic terms, which are interpreted by, by the Baha'i writings. The Baha'i writings are very direct and forthright in saying, more specifically what sort of things we will be able to do, be capable of doing, that we will recognize each other and so on, and that, in effect, instead of being relegated to either a good experience or a bad experience, the experience will be tailored to our condition when we leave this this world, uh, and that we'll proceed from sort of from where we leave off. So that's how I, I got into it initially, and, and then, I, as I say, I dealt more directly with it in a couple of other works. Right. Now, before the hour is up, I definitely want to have you share your poetry with us. I guess I first would like to know, uh, when did you discover there was poetry within you, and uh, can you please share Absolutely. Uh, poetry was was actually well. My first love was sculpture and art uh, when I was in undergraduate school and and writing, creative writing. And my first publication of my writing was in uh, poetry journals when I first started publishing in 1968. I would probably have 50 or so poems circulating at a, at a given time trying to find publications. So I did a lot of publications in poetry journals, and then I did a collection of my poetry uh, called A Sense of History in 19... Uh, I don't remember offhand. I can look at the book cover here. Uh, uh, 1990, published a extensive collection of my work. Uh, so poetry was, I started writing poetry before I did the, the prose, hmm. and b before I did the, uh, the more philosophical or theologically oriented work. Can you share a poem before we close? Oh, sure, absolutely. I can share as many as you want. And I'll tell you, I'll read this one. This is, this is a Baha'i conference in Green Lake, Wisconsin, every year. I was very inspired sitting on the shore of of this lake, which is the deepest lake in Wisconsin, and is a, a convention center there where various religious groups and so on uh, have meetings. So I wrote this one, and this, uh, the conference occurs in September, and the, the Green Lake Conference, I was a, a speaker there. And so this is called Green Lake, Wisconsin, September 1988, and it begins with the uh, 
epigram by Rumi, when we finally achieve the goal of our journey, the end of our search, we can set aside for a while all that has happened along the way. And then the, the poem begins. And so it is that my life, like the seasons, has come full circle. The leaves are laden with color, the lake burgeoning with steelhead. Here on this bench at Lone Tree Point, where in the summer of 1888, a sudden storm drove Mrs. Lawson's boat to this land's end, addicted her to the promise of peace of mind. I, too, find respite on this quiet lawn, refuge from the life we all would flee, gathered here with my friends to celebrate the covenanted promises of God. I stroll the shores of this, the deepest lake in all Wisconsin, exploring correlatives for inexorable truths about ourselves, that in these moments we might forge poems from the tangle of our lives. For we have assembled here to ask one unrelenting question, not about what lies beyond the horizon where sails evaporate in the morning haze, but only this, how are we doing so far? In a church play at age nine, I was John Wesley struggling methodically to become truly born again, and the artifice gave me cause to wonder if the part might be typecasting, if I too might someday merit transformation. And though with effort I still recall the pitched battles of my heart that followed, it is as the fiction of a dream, someone else's life, not mine. Now on my own corporeal shadow, now my own corporeal shadow becomes a noisome stranger, a memento mori I keep around to remind me I am yet imperiled and moribund. And though I am not Ulysses in my secret heart, I too hate the shore, but happily sail out my days on this deep, cold water, casting my line for only what is needful, hearing no sound but voices of my children, my dear wife beside me at the tiller, while I trim the sails. But this is not a time for, for leisure. Soon the winter winds will sting our faces, rend the trees of their rainbow harvest while we prepare for the unkind winter if we wish to emerge on the spring uh, on the other side in spring to creep out of the chrysalis of our becoming and a new race after all john thank you so much for sharing your story and your work my pleasure i hope you enjoyed that interview with john hatcher Professor Emeritus in English Literature at the University of Florida, and author of many works, including Poetry and Philosophy. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.